Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Conversations of the Strange. And I am absolutely privileged tonight to have someone on the uh, phone. He has been a true friend, and it's just an all-around nice guy. And uh, I was just talking about him with somebody today, and I said, you know, a friend of mine solved Jack the Ripper. And I am on the phone now with Randy Williams, uh, a private investigator who wrote a book called Sherlock Holmes in the Autumn of Terror. And he wrote a, uh, I'm going to say a fictional account, but it shares his truth. Uh, it shares his true theory, or I'm going to say that wrong. And I and please bear with me. But Randy, thank you so much and uh, welcome. Welcome to Conversations of the Strange. Hi, Donna. I'm just about as strange as they come, so you pick the right person. <laughs> thank you, man. So, um, real quick, um, let's just do a quick sum up of, of the Autumn of Terror. It is you saw you solved the Jack the Ripper murder uh, murders I yes. should say and as crazy as that sounds yes okay and let me just do a quick sum up of it um, it is a conspiracy and not like one of those crazy conspiracies like um, like oh we all know that uh, Roswell aliens crashed and are now designating who's going to win the presidential elections for the next 50 elections or something crazy like that. You, you mean, like, this that, is a conspiracy. <laughs> no, it's not. This is, you would consider this a conspiracy similar to the way um, John Wilkes Booth um, conspired with several other people to attempt exactly. to kill uh, Lincoln as well as the vice president uh, um the Secretary of State and the Secretary of War at the time. Um, You're absolutely right. It, you know, conspiracy people. Um, that that word conspiracy has taken on this this meaning now of kind of a, a nutty theory, a, a, a sort of a tin hat idea that that you're you're trying to propose something really outrageous. And in the case of of, of the law, a conspiracy is nothing more than one, well, actually two or more people working together to commit a crime which is going on as we speak in the hundreds of thousands, I would imagine, if not millions around the world. Right. So that kind of a conspiracy, yes. Now, not to be stupid about this, a very basic conspiracy would be like if you and I went into a convenience store and I said, hey, you go knock over that display of magazines and I'll grab three bags of potato chips for you and I to have and then you apologize to the manager and then I'll wait outside then you follow outside and then we eat the potato chips well that's a form of conspiracy I mean right. it's not not a very sophisticated right. one I mean, you should at least go for some beer but right <laughs> you know right um, and your your uh, book has been doing very well like several of investigators because um we've talked about in the past uh in previous interviews and elsewheres that i've done and then when i had the sherlock conversations uh you've talked about how um some very top uh forensic uh investigators have looked at what you've done and said wow this is they, they've either agreed with it or they've at least said this is probably the best explanation anyone has come up with. Am I correct well, on that? You're, you're more than correct. And actually, um, 
I have the three top criminologists in the world. Um, they like to be called criminalists rather okay. than criminologists. Um, I have the three top guys in the entire world on my team, and they've actually put their name on my book. So we have Dr. Michael Bodden, who you guys probably know from the autopsy TV show on HBO. Mm-hmm. But he's the chief medical examiner, you know, the coroner for New York City for over 25 years. You know, and he's been involved in so many high-profile cases from right from John F. Kennedy's assassination, Elvis Presley, John Belushi, the Claus von Bülow case. They made that movie about Glenn Close. Um, You know, he actually was contracted by the uh, British government in the 1960s to go to London and try to solve the Ripper case himself. But because of the the evidence, the lack thereof and the age of the photographs and, and that sort of thing, he wasn't able to do it. Right. Um, so we have Dr. Baden, Dr. Henry Seeley, who most people will recognize from the O.J. Simpson trial, the Chinese doctor who stood up and said something's wrong here when uh, it was brought out that there was tainted blood uh, planted on some socks in the O.J. case. And so Dr. Lee found that. And so he kind of had to expose that police corruption in that case. Right. But he's involved in so many other cases you know, John Benet Ramsey, Phil Spector, and he actually is solely responsible for the safe recovery and return home of that kidnapped victim in Utah, Elizabeth Smart, you may remember. who Yes. Was, yeah. Well, Dr. Lee's the one that figured out how it was done and then who did it and who to look for. And sure enough, he was right. And she was found alive and safe and brought home. And Dr. Lee was at her wedding and she keeps in close touch with him still. Oh, very so, nice. So we've got Dr. Lee, and then we've got Dr. Cyril Wecht, who also worked on um, John F. Uh, Kennedy's autopsy and, um, you know, the Warren report. Uh, he also worked on Robert F. Kennedy, oh. Elvis Presley, John Bonet as well, O.J. Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, remember the um, the Green Beret murder um, on base of the family, and he was blaming it on hippies. I believe, that, I'd, I'd have to look that up to be honest it, with you. It was a pretty big. It was a pretty big case, but it might be before your time. Right. You know, he, he went to Waco for that Texas Branch Davidian fire. Oh, so he's he's you know super uh, super well known and respected in the field. Um, he was involved in the Vince Foster autopsy. You know, the uh, the guy that shot himself in the head three times, committed suicide in the park. He was <laughs> very close with the Clintons. Yeah, he, he he committed suicide by shooting himself three times in the back of the head in the park. That was amazing. Yeah, I hate it when that happens. Yeah, yeah. me too. Yeah. So, oh. yeah, these guys are, are my co-authors. And so to have their rubber stamp or stamp of approval or their um, support is a great honor for me. And so I'm, I'm very honored by that. And, in fact, I was recently in London uh, about a month ago, and I managed to hook up with – uh, two of the world's top ripperologist experts. I'd met one of them before briefly and been in touch with both of them via the internet for some time, but spent time with both of them, and both of them were really super supportive of my theory and um, were actually like flabbergasted by the evidence that I brought out. Right. Now, real quick, can you do a quick um, the names of the individuals that were involved? with the Ripper murders uh, like who's the ringleader and then there were like uh, three people I believe if I remember correctly since the last time we talked you're right there were three um, Rippers I like to call them the four jacks though because there were actually four 
um, people behind it. There was one mastermind who I call the Jack of Diamonds. He was the money and the, the main brains behind the operation. And that was Prince Kropotkin of Russia. Prince Kropotkin had actually already been exiled from his own country for his involvement in the assassination of his own uncle, the Tsar of Russia. And he was imprisoned and exiled from two other countries, France and Switzerland, for organizing political murder. So he is a person who has a history of paying others to do his dirty work, which is, which involves the murder of political enemies. He was actually the brains and the finance behind the operation, as I call it, and he was the Jack of Diamonds. Then we have the guy I call the Jack of Hearts. His name was Louis Diemschutz. Although Diemschutz is not really a surname from Russia, it's a fake name, which means protector of noble women, or it can also mean protector made of smoke, as in smoke and mirrors. And once he gave his name to the police as Diemholtz, which means wood smoke. So he is also was also, I think, a very, very intelligent man, spoke at least five languages, and he was the steward, which is kind of like the president of the International Working Men's Educational Club, which was ostensibly an educational club, but was actually an anarchist socialist club whose goal was to destroy England at any by any means at any cost. Right. Deem Schutz was the steward and actually, in my opinion, pretended to find the body of Elizabeth Stride, the first of the so-called double event victims, on his doorstep and had, you know, played this elaborate ruse where he pretended to be all shook up by this finding and called all the police to the International Working Men's Educational Club. That was a form of propaganda to right. make his book famous. And in fact, the only reason why any of us know about it today is because of the murders. So he um, pretended to find this body and then played out uh, being all traumatized by it. But in fact, he wanted to bring what I call his nemesis to the premises. He wanted to get every cop in London, all the guys he'd been reading about who were on his trail, to come to his doorstep where he could actually meet them and and actually play games pretending to be this traumatized guy who'd found a body, but in actual fact, he was laughing at them. That sounds like very similar to some of the things that you'll hear about, like, modern serial killers, where um, they will... Actually, you know what? There was a really sad case, and I'd have to look it up, uh, the names of everyone that just slipped my mind. It was a young girl who was seven years old in um, Fort Lee, New Jersey. And uh, I believe it was Fort Lee. Or, it, no, it was around there. Sorry, it was like Park Ridge, that area of New Jersey. And I used to live near that area. And it occurred back in 79, and um, she was seven-year-old girl going to this gentleman's... I shouldn't say gentleman. He was in this house... Uh, go to collect um, uh, to collect Girl Scout cookies from him to collect money to give him the Girl Scout cookies. Well, he killed her and deposited her body. And then afterwards, when everybody was like, "Hey, have you seen the girl? Have you seen the girl?" He took part in oh, yeah. the searches for that. And you'll hear uh, things like that all very, the time. See, that's very typical. Hundreds, if not thousands, of killers have done it since, but the Ripper was the first to do it, as far as I know. Right, right. Now, let me kind of go back to the romanticized version of what people think Jack the Ripper was. And mm -hmm. and that's kind of top like... Top hat. Yeah. Top hat. Um, top hat. Foot, heavy footsteps. Foggy London night. 
women kind of dressed like they were stepping out of um, Pygmalion and these guys just kind of walk up and they're like are you lonely mom and they're like oh hello yeah and then they go into an alley and then Ripper does his business and then goes away and then he stops right there after these five murders and it just is this weird kind of romanticized image yeah yeah well first of all the the Ripper wasn't one man like you know we were starting to say it was it was Dean Schutz and he also had his two accomplices a 17 year old boy called Isaac Kozabrodsky I, Isaac M. Kozabrotsky, and remember that because he carved the initials IMK in the, one of the victim's faces. It's very clear to see if you turn the head sideways um, the way the Ripper would have been looking at her when he did it. But um, And then there was Samuel Friedman, who was sort of the lookout, the, the muscle. He'd stand guard. So I call uh, Diemschutz the uh, jack of hearts. I call Kozabrotsky the jack of spades because a spade isn't really a spade like you dig with it's it's a, a knife or sword right and I, and I call uh, Friedman the jack of clubs because he was a club member at the International Working Men's Club and also he was arrested uh, subsequently six months later with Diem Schutz and Kozabrotsky for assaulting a policeman and some other civilians with a club so I call him the jack of clubs so now they do not fit the stereotypical Jack the Ripper that you see in the movies with the top hat, the cape, and you know the well-dressed guy. Although, I will say this, Deem Schutz, by his own admission, when he supposedly found the body of one of the victims, was a costume jewelry salesman. And one of the um, eyewitnesses that saw the Ripper with another victim said that he was covered in costume jewelry, which included a thick gold chain with a, a large red gem hanging from it that couldn't be real because no such gem exists. And if that chain and gem were real, um, you couldn't walk around Whitechapel, the most impoverished area of London, without getting robbed and attacked for it. And he also had, interestingly, a horseshoe tie pin. So all items of costume jewelry, and Diemschutz was, in fact, a costume jeweler. But not only was he a costume jeweler, but when he was arrested in that subsequent crime I mentioned a, a minute ago, um, that violent crime where he assaulted a policeman and some some other people, um, he claimed when he went to court, no longer claimed to be a costume jeweler, because I think he knew the heat was on. Instead, he claimed to be a horseshoer. So oddly, the Ripper was seen wearing costume jewelry, which included a horseshoe tie pin. So me, I'm a martial artist. If I was a costume jeweler as well, and I needed a tie pin made, or I was going to choose one. I'd probably pick something that had like a fist on it, right. or these characters for my art. But here's a guy who's a horseshoer and a costume jeweler, conveniently. And Jack the Ripper is described as being covered in costume jewelry, including a horseshoe tie pin. So in in that respect, he might somewhat fit the description, although never a top hat was described. There were a very a, a large number of hats described. Uh, by various eyewitnesses as the Ripper having worn. Um, none of them was a top hat, though. There were different things, uh, wide awake hat. Um, there was something that, you know, a peaked cap. Um, there was a deer stalker, like the one Sherlock Holmes is famous for wearing. Yeah. In fact, in my book, when Sir Sherlock finally solves a crime, he goes into Dean Schutz's closet and finds all this evidence, including the, the deer stalker, and he takes the deer stalker and puts it on, and it becomes his trademark. And Watson says, yeah, I don't know that anybody but me even knows the uh, dismal origins of, of that hat. Oh, that's that interesting. Wears. But yeah, it, the, the real Ripper was seen to have been wearing a deerstalker. 
Oddly, or, or not, in my opinion, Diemschutz's wife was a hat maker, Friedman was a hat maker and a tailor, and don't forget the Ripper was seen wearing like 15 different coats. Right. And uh, Kozabrotsky was a hat, uh, a cap, a shaper of caps. So they were all in the hat industry, um, except Diemschutz. So it's funny because the Ripper was seen as wearing so many different hats and coats, and different eyewitnesses described him sometimes as being very young, sometimes middle-aged, and sometimes, you know, sort of 40. And, of course, Diemschutz was 27 during the murders. Friedman was 42. Kozabrotsky was uh, 19 by the time the murders were finished. Right, right. Now, and basically, your theory, because you have said, I've heard you say in interviews before, that it does not matter the reason why. It just, like... You just have, like, in modern investigations, there isn't yes. a case of, he, here's the motive for it. Like, motive is not the reason. Right. All you have to do is have, look, I don't care why Joe did this. We've got Joe's fingerprints on the baseball bat, and this was the right. baseball bat used to kill Steve. Exactly. In a court of law, motive is not a requirement for conviction. Right. The district attorney is not required to provide any motive whatsoever for any crime, although juries like to hear it. And if we know it or can guess it, we're going to include it in the testimony. However, it is absolutely not required to prove motive, although I have their motive, you know, very clearly delineated in my book. Their motive was anti-Christian, anti, uh, basically it was primarily against the sweating system which was a sort of quasi-slavery of the Jew in Whitechapel in those days. And they didn't hate prostitutes, they hated prostitution. So it wasn't that they hated prostitutes, but they hated prostitution. Um, Karl Marx in 1840 claimed that prostitution was the most egregious misuse of human beings possible. So if you're gonna abuse a human being, the absolute worst, you could do was force them into prostitution according to communism, anarcho-communism. So they they felt that this is a war and in this war there are going to be some casualties and it's not gonna be me. So what we're gonna do is we're going to choose the 12, 13, 14 most decrepit, close to death women in that profession and we're gonna use them in a way that their deaths will benefit thousands and in fact they did i hate to give them any credit for having succeeded but in fact queen victoria was forced to clean up that part of england and end the sweating system and end most of of that poverty and homelessness that was existing at that time because of the the uh light that was shined on that part of england by the ripper murders right so their motivation was to destroy or to to demoralize christians in fact, they committed one murder in Mitre Square. The Mitre, as you know, is the cap that's worn by the Pope. Right. Um, they wanted to spill the tainted blood of a prostitute on the head of the head of the Catholic Church. All of the murders were committed on uh, holy days dedicated to Mother Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. And in fact, the greatest of their crimes, the double event, I shouldn't say the greatest, but their tour de force, was committed on the greatest of the 12 great feasts of Mother Mary, primarily celebrated in Russia, 
and that is the uh, feast of the intercession. That's where Mother Mary to bat for the sinners. And they chose that day, which is the greatest of the 12 great feasts. All of the murders took place on days of the great feasts of Mother Mary. And they chose the particular greatest feast day to do the double event. And they killed the, one of the women in Mitre Square. They killed her and left her in what we call the Oran's position. When you go to church and you see uh, in any religious uh, painting of Mother Mary, she usually has her arms turned palm out down at her side spread. And there's usually a little circle in her tummy area where there's a baby Jesus. Right. Well, they left, they left the victim in Mitre Square in that exact position, but the, the, the circle, rather than baby Jesus, was a big hole in her body where she was ripped open and her uterus had been taken away. Um, let's not forget the prayer, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. So they were sending this message and nobody was getting it. And in fact, nobody, as far as I know, ever got it until I did. Right, yeah, I was going to say, because like, in one, um, like, no one has ever talked about the cat, the uh, the Catholic version or the Catholic origins of this. And I remember hearing in an interview you saying that, um, "Hey, what do you think of? Is this just all coincidental when you look at the feast days versus whenever these things happened?" And the person was like, "Yeah, that's a coincidence, sure." And no, no, it can't be. In fact, well, we no, did, no, I meant that sarcastically. I, I, I mean, of course. We, we did a little study where we took these dates, and I, I went to a Princeton math professor, a friend of mine, and I said, Tony, if I were to give you 13 murders that took place all on the 12 great feasts of Mother Mary, in fact, two of them took place on the same day a year apart because they ran out of feast days. So I said, if we took 13 murders that took place on the 12 great feasts of Mother Mary, what are the odds of it being a coincidence? And he said, okay, well, what was the period that, that they took place? And I said, well, they took place over a three-year period to the day, three years. And in those three years, there were these 13 murders, and they all took place on feast days of Mother Mary. What would the, what would the odds be? And he said, wow, let's just do one year, because if we do three years, it'll be even more infinitesimal. So right. let's take it over a one-year period. And he said, to have that happen by coincidence would be, the odds against that would be a, a five followed by 17 zeros to one against it being possible. So there isn't even a name for that number, but it's, it's the equivalent of a DNA match. It is absolutely the, the closest thing to impossible for it to have been a coincidence. Right. Now kind of going back to like the whole ripper zeitgeist for lack of a better phrase why do you think that it has remained that this murder has remained as i hate to say the word popular but there's always somebody trying oh, to do the well, armchair quarterbacking like with this lizzie borden um mm -hmm. probably not to be silly about this probably in the next few years you're going to see um, same thing with uh, John Benet Ramsey, uh, the OJ murders, where somebody just sits there and goes, "Oh, I can really solve this if I walk here and da 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 da." Like, there's always somebody that has like a new theory or a new, sure. new whatever it is. Um, well, why, I, I, why did why this why these murders? 
Well, for one thing, it, it relates back to the mystique you kind of hit on earlier. You know, the top hat, the cloak, the foggy London nights, the cobbled streets. Um, it has that. It has it's unsolved, and, and everybody loves a mystery. Well, not everybody, but most people love a mystery, and it's become almost a uh, a challenge, a chip on the shoulder. It's sort of can you solve this? Uh, no one else has been able to do it satisfactorily. So many people have claimed to have done so, but none with any real evidence. And in fact, if it, let's take if I take myself for example, why did I want to do it? It's because all these years I've been reading about serial murders and, and killings. Uh, I, I've always been very interested in how the police catch these guys and, and all the science involved. And it's always struck me that of all these Ripper books that I've read, because I'm interested in the case, um, nobody has ever proved their case to my satisfaction and shown actual evidence. So being a private investigator, it was sort of a challenge for me that, hey, let me see if I can do this because I'm a lover of puzzles and word games and mystery and solving crimes. And so I thought, let me have a go at it. I mean, I've really been trying for 40 plus years, but I really put my mind to it back in 2012 to, to finally figure it out. Right. And I, you know, to really apply myself. But I think people love a mystery and people, people want the answers, you know, people or do they? I mean, it would appear that they don't really want the answers because people love to watch these programs and at the end sort of be left open-ended. And I think that that is really the mystique of it. Had it been solved way back when, um, I think that we wouldn't all be talking about it today. Right. Well, I was going to say that what it reminds me of is like I've I've had long discussions with friends where I've said the worst thing that could ever happen to the Loch Ness um, in the, the um, Loch Ness traveling industry is if they find for sure whether there's a monster down there or not. Like well, if, if you, they found it, then everybody would want to go there, wouldn't they? Right. Now, but if they didn't find it, they'd go, yeah, who cares? Why would we even want to visit? Well, so, that's what they're at now. That's where they're at now is that they we're not sure. Yeah, exactly. So it's, re- it's better to have it unsure than there might be a chance that it's not there and then lose the tourist dollars. And I, and, I think that might be true with the Ripper case if, in fact, it wasn't such an interesting and intricate plot that it was used and, and such an interesting and intricate motive. I think that just the unraveling of it is going to bring so many people, it already has, people that have read my book, bring the interest of so many people to the case that, you know, and in fact, I wrote it as a Sherlock Holmes novel in order to bring more people to the case that weren't interested in it before. And I think that as this catches on, as people are understanding my theory and when the TV show comes out, which I'm doing a TV show about it. um, Oh, nice. I think that it's going to bring more people's interest to to this. I hate to call it. Well, it's kind of a cottage industry, you know, in in London, the, the tours. There's there's Ripper books galore. People, you know, print Jack the Ripper T-shirts, and there's so much amazing art out there that people have done based on the case. I think it's going to be a resurgence, in, in my opinion. And I think as people understand just how clever these guys were, I mean, I hate to give them credit, but they were, in fact, very clever. That's why they didn't get caught for so many years. Right now, real quick, let me just because, uh, like, your I know your time is limited, but I just want to uh, double check a couple of things. Number one. The five, what they call the five women, the five Ripper, I, I, don't, I don't know, what, like the five oh, hardcore Ripper. Yeah, 
women. There's five. They're called the canonical five. Okay. Canonical meaning wide, generally accepted by most people as having been Ripper victims. Right, but you believe that that extends to at least seven others, I guess? If they... I, I don't just believe it, man. I've proven it okay. without, beyond any reasonable doubt. But, but yes, I believe there were 13 murders and another attack that didn't result in the woman's immediate death. Okay, gotcha. And more or less, what stopped them? What stopped them? And I think this was something that we talked about in the past. Why, why, why did these guys just up and go, hey, you know what? That that's it. Was it because of the number of feast days, or did the um, I guess the guy that was in charge of the conspiracy go? You know, these three guys that I'm working with, they're getting a little bit crazy with this. Not exactly, but it, it did have to do with him, in my opinion. And actually, uh, Prince Kropotkin explained it himself. Um, he he actually, in his own writings, he made a lot of excuses for the Ripper, and told people that a there was more than one person. And B, that they were actually altruistic and were really not to be blamed and actually were to be praised. He he actually he he knew that somebody like me was going to come along someday and uncover them. Right. So he wrote sort of an apology for Jack the Ripper and an explanation. But in that explanation, he himself says that the crimes uh, stopped because the people in Whitechapel wanted them to. And I also think I think that was his sort of feel-good explanation for why they ended. But I really think they ended. Primarily, well, number one, they were losing the shock value. The whole thing was done for propaganda, for the salacious nature of prostitute murders to draw attention right. to their cause. And by the 13th murder, people were sort of saying, oh, yeah, another Ripper murder, you know? And they just weren't, it wasn't as sensational as it had been. I think that's one reason why. Secondly, I think that, and primarily, I think that because Deem Schutz, Kozbrodsky, and Friedman were arrested for a, a, a violent crime that people think had nothing to do with the Ripper murders, but in fact, it had everything to do with them. It had three crime scenes uh, in, in common. It, it had uh, the the violence that they showed, uh, you know, towards the women. Well, the, the best predictor of future behavior is pre prior behavior. Right. So there was violence. But in any case, Diemschutz was only one of the three that went to prison. Friedman flew the coop, never showed up for sentencing and remained a fugitive for the rest of his life. Right. Deem though, did show up for court and was sent to Pentonville prison for three months. So I believe that what happened was Prince Kropotkin, the, the main brain behind these crimes, said, you know what? It's getting hot. These guys have now been arrested along with Deem wife. The first four people out the door of the double event, the night he supposedly found the body of Elizabeth Stride, these guys, all four of them, just got arrested for a crime that took place at both scenes of the double event, and they beat up a man who lived at the scene where they left the Goulston Street graffito. You know, the Jews are the men. Right. That will... right. Yeah. So we have all these connections to the the Mitre Square, the to the double event, and so I believe Kropotkin said, "Man, even these idiot police are going to figure this out," and eventually we're going to have to get Diemschutz back out of here and put send him back to Russia, which is exactly what he did. I think like any other military operation, you drop your men in, you get the job done, and then you pull your men out. And I think he, you know, like, as I said, Friedman remained a fugitive for the rest of his life. We don't know what happened to him. Kozabrotsky was just a footnote in the case. Nobody bothered keeping track of him. I wouldn't be surprised one bit if both Friedman and Kozabrotsky died in some sort of 
freak accidents that nobody cared about, you know, tragic cart accident or a, a you know right. piano falling out a window on him because I can't imagine Prince Kropotkin leaving those loose loose ends, especially the kid. I would think that he would have had to have taken care of him. So yeah, because yeah, at some point in time, I would imagine that like heck, um, what was his name? Mark Phelps, right before he died, finally came forward and said, "Oh yeah, I'm deep throat." I would imagine that somebody like this, he would come out of no, come out of the woodwork and be like, "Yeah, you know what? I was right. either he claim either claims that he did the whole thing by himself, or he would at least says, "Hey, I'm part of the conspiracy." Or right. Something and so like that's why I I think that they took care of, and when I say took care of, I mean killed Kozabrodsky and or Friedman because none of them ever came out on their deathbed or were ever sort of forced to to confess. So I think that Diemschutz, being a, a consummate soldier, went back to Russia under Kropotkin's uh, aegis and resumed his life as whoever he really was, because we know he wasn't Louis Diemschutz. And I think the other two were probably killed, but they, they were so unimportant to the case that I don't think that their deaths would even warrant any special you know, interest of anyone back then. Right. Randy, I can't even begin to thank you for your time. In all candor, Randy agreed to do this at the last minute, and I think he's delayed spending an evening with a friend just so that he can talk to me, and uh, we talk about his book, and I'm going to get this up um, as soon as we possibly can because I wanted this for a very special day, and Randy, you have been so incredibly kind, and I just want to say thank you so much. Oh, you're more than welcome. I, you know, I always love talking to you. I appreciate all your support, and you were you know, interviewing me back before the book was really as successful as it is now and I think that your interviews with me helped it along its way and I appreciate that very much as well. You are very kind and you've got that great Facebook group Uh, is it a Facebook group or Facebook page? It's a Facebook page and I love people to join it it's it's titled uh, Randy Williams vs versus Jack the Ripper it's all one long title Right. Uh, but I think if you Probably if you search for Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror on Facebook, it'll bring you to that page as well. Well, I'll tell you flat out, we will have a link for it when we post everything on our, um, when we post it up on our podcasts and everything. And also at the same time, Randy, you do something, just on a completely side note, you do something I don't see a lot of people doing these days on Facebook. You will actually welcome brand new likes to your page and you'll put up like the most amazing Sherlockian Jack the Ripper art that you can find and you post those on there and I always thought that that was just such a nice little touch that you have with that yeah whenever I get a notice that a new member has joined the group and we're we're over 10,000 amazing and whenever I get a notice that I I have a new member I'll I'll find something you know the page is you're you're a member of the page I think yes so you, you know it's there's not just it's not just Sherlock it's anything Victorian it's Sherlock if it has to do with the Ripper if it had you know if it's a particularly heinous serial murder if it's um, just some cool London sightseeing pictures if it's um, I don't know anything that that creepy you know it, it, more and more I'm, I'm going into things you know that are a little bit more like the horror side of things so I find something that can relate to that person. A lot of times what I'll do, it, it's not quite stalking, I don't think, but let's say it'll say, okay, Don Smith has joined your page. So I'll click Don Smith's profile and I see Don Smith is just crazy about dogs, just loves dogs. 
So then it, you can see that immediately by clicking on their page. You don't have to, you know, stock. And then I'll click back onto my page and I'll go, all right, well, let's find a nice picture of a dog dressed up like Sherlock Holmes or, you know, a dog wearing a, a cloak and a top hat holding a knife, you know? Right. And I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Or And so I'll try to find something that will click on that person's immediate interest that I can see. I don't sit there and, and research them. I, I can't or wouldn't, but I'll just click their page, see, see a little bit about them, find out, you know, what it is they're really into immediately. You know, it might be a girl who, who loves fashion, um, and, and then I'll I'll put up a you know when I welcome her I'll find a picture of a Victorian woman you know decked out in full regalia you know as her welcoming picture. Right. That's just that's just brilliant marketing right there. So that's just and and you're tailoring it to the people that are there. So that's just brilliant there and uh, and and I think that that's great. Randy, thank you so much again. Uh, once again, let me say this on the record: I owe you one. I really do, buddy. I really, really owe you no, one. No, so, you calling me. So anyway, everyone, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you have a great night.